Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. If this is your first time here, uh, we are going through an 18-week series on Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the Old Testament prophet books, um, has 66 chapters in it. It's pretty big. 18 weeks is probably actually not long enough to, be, to go through it, but we're doing it in 18 weeks. And today, our section that we're reading through is Isaiah 28 to 33. Um, and before we get into the text today, though, um, I just want to talk about this, I just want to talk about the idea of trust for a second. Um, and this is off the back this week of just the Royal Commission into, into banking, legis- banking practices. Um, as you might have heard on the news, there's been some pretty explosive details in terms of banks charging dead people fees and overcharging people and uh, just doing really dodgy practices. And there's this huge uproar that's happening out of the Royal Commission at the moment. Um, and it's kind of sad because the banks are making huge amounts of money through, from, through, through people like you and me who are putting their trust in them. Um, I've heard lots of cynical people talk about they don't trust the banks, I don't, and I didn't understand why. But now after this Royal Commission, I can kind of understand where these people are coming from. Um, can I understand people's concerns about the bank? Um, heck, the first headline that I saw when, about this particular thing um, was from the Sydney Morning Herald. It said, Breach of Trust how Australian banks went bad. And trust is, this, is, is hard, it's really hard to be gained, and it's so easily broken, though. Um, we only need to remember, maybe, if we go back eight, nine years to the early 20-teens, you know those RAA insurance ads with George Capanaris, with like the, you know those ones? And he's, he's always talking about something... Uh, going wrong and his insurance company not coming through and he's like, trust, 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 trust. He's, he's, he has, he's so triggered by trust issues. <laughs> Who can you trust? Apparently RAA, but I don't know. Um, trust is a huge thing in our lives. But when it comes to our faith, what I want to look at today is if we can't trust a bank that we can touch and see, if we can't even trust an insurance company, how do we trust God? Because let's be honest, look, all of us, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian here today, we have some, sometime wrestled with this question, this problem, how do we trust God? Let's pray and let's see what the Word has for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your Word that you have given Isaiah uh, for us for our um, edification and, our, um, and just for our growth. I pray that you help us see you clearly. I, I pray that I be able to present your word with clarity. I pray that uh, you may make us more wise, and, but also let us see you for who you really are. I pray that you soften our hearts, that you open our eyes to see you and give us ears to hear. Uh, let us see the totality of your character tonight, Lord Father. Pray that you stir our affections for you. Let us be effectual doers of the words in response to who you are. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. So, Isaiah 28 to 33. 
Um, if you've been tracking along with us uh, up to this point in time, uh, the biblical historical background is that um, Isaiah has put out a whole bunch of uh, pronouncements of judgment on uh, not just his own people, but uh, people around the area as well. If you want to catch up on that, they're on the podcast. You can catch up the last two. Um, and Isaiah has pronounced judgment on the entire earth. Um, God was raising up this, uh, this empire, Assyria, and was going to use the Assyrians to judge the people of Judah. Um, Assyria was this major world power at the time, and they were coming for Judah. And during the time of Isaiah chapters 28 and 33, what we're looking at tonight, we know that God's people, instead of running to God, they run away from him and run towards Egypt. But help from Egypt was useless, and the Assyrians were right on their doorstep. And this is the context that we have for Isaiah 28 to 33 tonight. Um, and... So Isaiah 28 to 33 is made up of these things called the six woes. Um, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of the woes that Jesus gave the Pharisees in Luke 11. If you want to have a look at that in your own time, there are some really interesting similar similarities between the two, some interesting com- common themes. Um, unfortunately, tonight we won't have enough time to read through all of Isaiah 28 to 33. That takes like 40 minutes to do properly. Um, but I'm just going to have a brief overview of what it is and see what God has for us tonight. I encourage you to read through it in your own time um, and really take the time to really break down the text. Um, you'll, I, I, I think you will benefit, really benefit from it a lot. Um, but if you're not in a DG, get into a DG because that's the place where we can actually talk about these things. Um, so Isaiah uh, pronounces six woes. Five of these woes are directly towards God's people in Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, and the last one is about Assyria. But all of these woes concern God's people. Uh, the first woe is found in uh, chapter 28, 1 to 29. And here Isaiah is warning of the wrath against both the northern kingdom and Judah for disregarding and scoffing his warnings and for, their, for them continuing in their debauchery. Uh, for example, uh, we'll look at Isaiah 28, uh, 9. Uh, it says, To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. This, is, this particular verse here is a hypothetical uh, person talking, but actually is reflective of the, of the people at the time. And they're saying, God's people are saying to Isaiah here, who you gonna really, who's going to really listen to you, Isaiah? A baby's going to listen to you? <laughs> Good luck, man. The Israelites were so proud that they wouldn't just listen to him, they wouldn't even consider hearing of God's judgment. It's kind of like them saying to God, Psh, new phone, who this? I don't really care. Click. I don't want to listen to you, Isaiah. It's pretty rude, right? That's just the first woe. The second woe is found in chapters, uh, chapter 29, verses 1 to 14. Isaiah pronounces that Jerusalem will be humbled for the disingenuous worship of God. Uh, we see in Isaiah 29, 13, uh, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with my mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. 
This might sound familiar to you if you're familiar with Jesus' teachings. Uh, Jesus quotes this exact same passage in Matthew 15, 8 to 9, where he's talking to the Pharisees. And it's the same, the, the, the case is the same. It's about outward religiosity and worship. If, it is not an, if your worship is not an honest reflection of your heart, God actually despises it. You can imagine the people of Judah at the time, they were, a lot of them were saying, yeah, we bless Yahweh, he's so great, he's so awesome, he's so strong, let's have feasts for him. And the very next moment, they're in Egypt, and they're asking Egypt, man, we are royally stuffed, Assyria's coming for us, we, are, we got nothing. And God can't stand for, hyper, uh, for, hypocrit- for hypocritical worship of his name. It's an offense to who he is. And we see, continue to see of God's people offend him more in the third woe found in 29:15 to 24. In this particular woe, Isaiah pronounces woe against those who try to hide their plans and deeds from God. Uh, for example, we see in uh, chapter 29:15 to 16, ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose, da- he de- whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded, regarded as the clay, that the thing that made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. For the leaders of Judah, they acted as if God didn't even exist. If anyone in the kingdom of Judah really should know who, if that God existed, it should have been the leaders. And when they say, hypothetically say, who sees us? Who knows us? It's so stupid. It's, think of a kid like trying to hide from their parents. If they can't see me, they, I can't see them. if I can't see them, they can't see me, right? It, it looks kind of cute for when the kids do it, but when the leaders of Judah do that to God, it's pretty ignorant. It's silly because God, if you think about it, God is the sovereign king of the universe. He knows everything. Of course God could see them. Of course God knew what they were up to. But it was Judah's leader's blatant disregard for God. And it's a scene in verse 16 when they say, he did not make me, or he has no understanding. How absurd is that? Of course God made you. (laughs) When you think about it, what authority does clay have over its maker? Does clay know what it needs to be or how it needs to be formed or shaped or molded or function if not for the maker? This is the heart of God's people at the time. You can see their blatant disregard for, for the way God... Um, for, for, for the, the, the blatant disregard towards God. And this led God to the fifth, fourth woe found in chapter 30, verses 1 to 33. Um, in this woe, Isaiah pronounces woe upon Judah for rejecting his message and then relying on Egypt to protect them against Assyria. For example, uh, verses 1 to 2 in chapter 30, Ah, stubborn children. God, Isaiah calls them stubborn kids. Stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt, without asking for my direction to take refuge 
in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. The fact that God's people were calling on Egypt is a huge offence to God. If you know your Bibles to some degree, um, the story of Moses and um, in, in, through that narrative, God saves his people from the oppressive and abusive rule of the Egyptians. Um, God hears them in Exodus that I've heard the cries of my people and he, and he wants to save them. And God does amazing things. He sends uh, miraculous plagues. He parts the Red Sea. He bails them out of Egypt. He conquers nations for them and gives them the promised land. And what do they do? They go back to Egypt. It's the equivalent of if you're plucked out and rescued out of an abusive relationship and then just going straight back in. This is even fleshed out more so in the next woe, where Isaiah announces, pronounces that uh, woe upon those who rely on Egypt and their military might rather than, than, than Yahweh. Uh, seen, uh, seen in chapter 31, verses uh, all the way, actually all of 31 and 32, really. Um, for example, Isaiah 31, 3, uh, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. When you think about it, if you if it was a contest, who would win? Like, who would win? One Yahweh, all powerful God of the universe, who wrecked what was once the biggest superpower in the ancient Near East, or some sandy Egyptian boys. It's not even a contest. It's not a contest. It's not like you've got a head-to-head four wins versus five wins. It is Yahweh who absolutely humiliated the Egyptians. And yet they go back and rely on Egypt instead of on God. This shows the hard-heartedness of God's people. And God only needs to stretch out his hand a little bit and, make the, and he makes that alliance absolutely and utterly useless. And that leads us to our final word that Isaiah gives in, in chapter 33. Um, in the midst of Judah being double-crossed by Assyria, Isaiah pronounces woe on Assyria, and God vows to destroy them and deliver his people. But the context of this woe is literally when Judah is, has legitimately no option left and asks God, and asks God to intervene. That sounds a lot of gloom and doom. I know we've been talking about these words for a while now. Um, but when you look at these words, what do you see? What we see here is the absolute and utter contempt they had for God. Can you imagine if you created something or you cared for something and you were stabbed in the back and told to take a hike? How would you feel? Heck, if you think about being stabbed in the back by someone, and then when all's said and done, they come groveling back to you. How does that make you feel? After all God has done for them, after all the Israelites have witnessed and experienced over the thousands of years, and this is how they treat him? That they willfully ignore his warnings, they pretend to worship him, but not with the right heart. They didn't consult him at all when they were planning things. They, they placed their trust in other things other than him. They relied on others for protection, even though in the past 
God has protected them, and they come back right at the end when they have no option. What we see here is of God's people is wholesale rejection to who he is and active rebellion against him. This is insolence towards the God of the universe. And when I was reading these chapters, I was thinking, oh my gosh, these guys are friggin' idiots. <laughs> these, guys are, these guys are fools, man. And anyone in their right mind, right mind would say that anyone who was betrayed that badly, they deserve, that's ground for justice, man. That's, that's grounds for justice. I mean, it, it's so easy to read and say, they had it coming. But if we're honest, if we're really, really, really honest with ourselves, we're exactly like these people. We're exactly like God's people in these six woes. When, whether you're tonight here as a Christian or a non-Christian, does this not remind you of ourselves, maybe even just a little bit? Some of these apply more to Christians than non-Christians, but regardless, they, they still apply. Let's be real for a second. I, mean, I don't want to don't raise hands, just, just, just think about this for a sec. How many of us have willfully ignored God's warnings? How many of us have claimed God to be amazing in the two hours that we're at church and continue to live like God doesn't exist for the next 166 hours of the week? How many times have we not consulted him when we've planned stuff? Or we put our trust in others or ourselves over him? Or we rely on someone to come through for us in our hard times? Or perhaps when we come back after and we feel like we're almost like groveling because it's, it feels like for us it's almost like at the point of no return. I'm not trying to guilt you, Trippy. I'm just, I'm just trying to... Let's, let's think this through. The reason why God's people did what they did was because they didn't want to relinquish control. They didn't want to trust him. They thought they knew better. They thought that they were better than God. And that's the original, that's the, that's the original sin of pride. I'm like, well, the original sin in the, in the Garden of Eden, eat this fruit and you will be like God. And that's the same with us as well. Any admission uh, where we think we don't need him or we can't trust him, it's, if you really think about it, it's actually an idolatrous admission that ultimately declares that I think I'm, I'm better than God. We probably wouldn't say that out loud. But in actuality, that's precisely that what we're saying. It's precisely what we're proclaiming with our lives. It's the original sin of pride. And it comes down to us having an overinflated value of ourselves and a severely deficient valuing of who God is. And what we do, because we're made to worship, is that we find these functional saviors. For Judah, it was Egypt. For us, what do we turn to in our, when, our, when our lives are in adversity? Especially if you're a Christian, what do you do in times of adversity? What do you go to first? What do we put the stock of our livelihoods in the most? Where do we put our trust and our hope? Is it the government? Political parties, movements? Is it your job security? It's probably not the banks, right? <laughs> Is it stocks, investment, cryptocurrency maybe? Is it your career and its advancement? 
Is it maybe your spouse or your significant other? Or if you're single, is it the prospect of, quote-unquote, the one? Is it maybe your family? Or is it maybe your self-confidence because you were told that you could be strong and independent? I've mean, I got news for you. Beyonce might think that you're strong and independent, and she says that you're flawless, but the Bible says not. And if we truly think about it, every one of those functional saviors is flawed. Don't get me twisted. All those things are good things. But those good things aren't God things. They cannot and will not sustain you. They cannot and will not take the expectation of your soul. They cannot and will not ever compare to the glory of God. It sounds like gloom and doom all over again, but actually, when you think about it, it's, it's actually good news. The news, the news that none of, this, none of these functional saviors can actually compare to God is actually really good news. Despite all the judgment that's happening in these six verses, there's, so much, there's actually so much hope in there. That's why our series is called is, um, Isaiah, Judgment and Hope. There's so much hope in them. Why? Because God is actually offering himself in them. He's offering his presence. He is the only one of capable he's the only one capable of saving them from their enemies and themselves. And in each of these woes in Isaiah, he doesn't just leave it at the pronouncement and judgment and that's it, you're done. You're gone. Each woe actually contains a corresponding promise of hope for God's people. And we won't go through all of them tonight, but just, just have a listen. In the first woe, um, uh, let's look at Isaiah twenty eight, fifteen to sixteen. Um, there we go. Uh, 28, 15 to 16. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement, when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies with our refuge, and falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Isaiah calls out the, the alliance with the Egyptians for what it truly is, a covenant of death. But God has also promised a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. If, you're familiar, if you, this sounds familiar from the New Testament, it's found in places like Acts 4, 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 2, Isaiah is talking about the Messiah. And for the Messiah to come, God needed to preserve a remnant of his people through Judah. God was going to save them. We see here that God is declaring that he will lay a foundation um, that shows that he is serious about following through with his plan. Success in saving God's people was, not, was always going to be through God's plan, not, the, not, the, not their own plan. You also see more hope in, in, say, the second word here. Even though Jerusalem worshipped with their mouths and not their hearts, God was going to rescue them from their own quote-unquote wisdom and religiosity. You see, in, you see this in Isaiah 29:14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. The people of God thought they were so wise without God. But they really weren't. 
And in this, God is actually going to do a wondrous thing. He is going to save them from themselves. But where I really want to look at tonight is, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's great hope right there, but I really want to actually look tonight at the hope that is offered in Isaiah 30, in the fourth word. Even though Judah rejects God and goes to Egypt for military protection, God offers Jerusalem future grace and destruction of Assyria if they were going to repent and turn to him. We see this in Isaiah 30, 18 to 19. Um, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show, you mer- to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. It's interesting. We'll keep this on the screen for a second. It's interesting to note here that the word "therefore" is used in these hope, these announcements of hope. We often think "therefore" is this, is this term to indicate like a cause and effect kind of deal, but we know that the sin of Judah wasn't the reason why God intervened. Rather, the "therefore" is here to actually show us that the reason why God intervenes is because of His perfect nature. God's perfect nature inherently compels Him to save his people. God cannot help but look at the rebellion of his people and save them. And this is huge news for us. It means that God does not need any other motivator to save us. He doesn't save us because we're good people. He doesn't save us because we're people who try or try to pull up ourselves by our bootstraps. He saves us for no other reason than it being an expression of his glory. And It's simply who he is. As Christians, it means that God is not looking. He's not looking at your performance. He's not looking at your merit. He's not looking at your moral standing. Despite all we've done towards God, He has saved us and He continues to love us because it is in His nature to love us. I love this next bit when He says, God waited to be gracious. How many people do you know wait to be gracious? Like pretty much no one, right? That's how much God loves his people. He waits to be gracious. Up to this point in the biblical narrative, he's been so patient. He's been so steadfast with his people. And he continues to be patient. To be gracious to someone, uh, that means it costs you something, right? Scripture tells us here that God is longing to forgive his people a forgiveness that will cost him because he loves them. He wants to forgive them. He longs to forgive them. And he wants to do it to a group of people that betrayed him and fall short of their covenant with him all the time. That is love unlike any other. What manner of love is that? When the Psalms talk about God being slow to anger, we don't really have any concept of how slow that really is. When you think about it, if you get cut off in traffic, what happens? <laughs> I've, I've mentioned this, this, this route, like the story before, but I remember driving down uh, to work one day, just listening to the worship music, actually singing along, and someone cut me off, and I swore at the person. <laughs> God is so slow to anger. And, this is, and getting cut off is nothing compared to being sinned against 
as the Lord of the universe. God is the absolute pole opposite of us. We see more of his patience in verse 27, 30, 27. Um, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue like, is like a devouring fire. We know that God is righteous. We know that he is just, but he's holding back. The, the name of the Lord comes from afar. If you go back in verse 19, it says, He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears, he answers you. This is a testament to the immediacy of God. All God's people needed to do was legitimately cry out to him and turn to him. In the middle of judgment, God is so willing to forgive his people. He's so kind, he's so patient, he's so merciful. He's so forgiving and he's pleading with us to come back to him and place our trust in him. How good is our God? Like, legitimately, how good is our Father? We, there was no one like him at all. And that should move us. That should hit us right in the soul. I remember when I was reading this the other, um, the other day, I felt like legitimately feeling like crying because God is so good to us. We don't deserve it. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us if God is so good for us? If, if, if God is so good to us? If you're, if you're Christian, it should move you to respond to, the, to his love and grace. And we see what that should look like in verses 20 to 22 of chapter 30. Let's read that. And did the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction? Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or the left, or when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, Be gone. It's interesting that Isaiah uses the images of adversity affliction being like bread and water. It's almost as if Isaiah is saying that these judgments are actually going to feed you and your spiritual growth. Bread and water are good things for you that nurture and, 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 and feed you. And we humans are fickle. We see this time and time again in the Bible. And if we're honest with our own lives, when we go through adversity, or if we didn't have adversity, we'd probably run away from God. When we go through adversity and affliction, it's actually one of the ways that God, God uses that to keep us grounded. Pain, turmoil, and suffering, they aren't pleasant experiences. But God can use that to keep us close to Him. In fact, if you look at us in the West and our increasing secularization, um, in particular Adelaide, our comfort is not actually doing us any favours when it comes to drawing nearer to God. Despite God giving us these afflictions and adversities, what we do know is that God promises to be with us. He is our comfort. God is with us. 
And he's with us through his Holy Spirit. Here, the Spirit isn't called teacher. God has empowered us with his Spirit, and he lives in us. And when we start to stray from, from, from the ways of God, his Spirit prompts us. No, you're going the wrong way, back to this way. It's up to us to listen to him. God will convict us of our functional saviors. He'll convict us of our pride. He'll convict us of our sin. And if we know God and treasure him for all he actually is, we will gladly submit to that prompting. We will gladly throw away, that, throw away the things that are taking up our utmost affections towards him. When his spirit lives in us, we learn to trust him with all of our lives. Uh, Philippians 3, 8 puts it this way, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's throw all the way that hinders us, anything between us and God. The question I want to really pose for you tonight is, are you trusting in who he says he is? Do we really believe that God is bigger than everything? The strength of our faith and our trust in God is only limited by our understanding of how glorious his character really is. I know this is challenging. True understanding of who God is forces us to change. And like the Israelites, we don't want to relinquish control, especially when it comes to stuff like how I spend my money, how I should approach my relationships, how I should spend my time, how hard I should work. It's ironic that we're more than happy to trust God with our sin, but not with our lives. But we need to remember who God is. Remember that He is supreme. Remember that He is perfect. Remember that He's holy and righteous. And He is worthy and deserving of all glory and praise because of His infinite value and worth. God is all knowing and all powerful. And He is so big that He's everywhere at once. And He's completely volitional and can do whatever He pleases. And yet, what does he want? He wants us. Out of all things, he wants us. No one is more worthy of trust than God. No one. He's offered us not just eternal life, but life to the full. That life is from now. To know him and to cherish him and to have fullness of joy. God is calling us to that. If you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, I'm glad that you're listening to this and you're hearing this. And I want to offer, this, this offer of trusting God is, is here for you tonight as well. It's on, God is extending his hand of forgiveness towards you today. There's no greater thing than knowing the Father God and being known by him. We were all made to experience the depths of his glory and his love. And despite our sin and rebellion towards him, he has made it possible that we can actually experience him and have fullness of life from today. I want to encourage you 
to discover for yourself who God really is, to discover the totality of his character, to discover the endless joy that you will have in finding Christ. Let's all run towards him, seek his face more, trust him, and see him for all that he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for um, just you, <laughs> your perfection. Um, it's crazy to think that you want us. You don't need us, but you want us. <laughs> we thank you for Jesus that you've made it possible to, for us to have a relationship with you. We thank you for your word that we can get to know you more. I pray that as we read your word that you unveil yourself to us. That we may be able to see all of who you are. You're gracious. You're so patient. You're so merciful. You're so kind. You're so slow to anger. Help us see you. Remind us by your spirit of who we are in you pray that we may be filled with inexpressible joy, Lord Father. I pray that we be able to take this message to the people who don't know you, who are lost and are wandering, who have functional saviors and are putting their trust in things that that cannot bear that weight. Help us be your people. Help us love you more. Help us see you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.